reading from the book of Luke. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The word of the Lord. Mary was really scared when the angel came to her. There was one main angel called Gabriel. He was just a boy angel. She had wings and she was all white. The angel said, you're gonna have a special baby. And it was God's son. She was quite excited. A bit scared. And she was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have the son of God. And then she was like, I can't, I'm not married and stuff. Joseph, he was a builder. Mary told Joseph that she was having a baby called Jesus and it was God's son. He's like, what? Then Joseph saw the angel in a dream. I think Joseph was really scared. And then they went to Bethlehem. On a donkey. It'd be quite hot. She had a baby in her tummy and she would have been really heavy. <laughs> she said, Can we stop anywhere with these houses? They had to try and find somewhere for Mary to have the baby. They went around a whole neighbourhood. No, there's no space. Everyone said no in an angry voice because it was the middle of the night. And keep it. He said, yeah, there's a barn type thing around the back. They had to go to a barn and have their baby. 
it has sheeps. It was like all hay and animal poop and sheep and things. Mary put baby Jesus in one of those troughs. They call the baby Jesus and they loved him. And he has two daddies, God and Jesus. They both needed to look after the baby. The angel told the shepherds to follow the star. There was three kings. They followed the star all the way to where Jesus was born. When they get to the stable, they give them the presents. And then they got some angels as visitors too. And then there was a giant star. Everyone was there. Then there was a party. Girls reading in the story, the best part of the service is over, but I hope you'll stay. Each week we take time in our worship to treasure Jesus with our money, and so I'd like to invite the ministers forward to receive that up, but we thought we would take a moment and have you share uh, just a burst of gratitude. What's on top of your Christmas thankful list? What are you most thankful for this morning? While we, re, while we give our money, let's shout it out verbally as well. What are you thankful for? <laughs> this side of the room over here is kind of quiet. Family. <laughs> I'll pay. Lord Jesus, hear our prayers. Amen. In his book, Citizen Soldier, Stephen Ambrose shares the World War II narrative of Private George McAvoy. Private McAvoy, on Christmas Eve, 1944, was in Fratine, Belgium. He was in a Catholic church for the midnight mass. He shares what the service was like. It was packed. <laughs> Seemed every one of the town residents was in the church, and then the American GIs who were not on mission were in the back of the church. But they were in full combat dress which meant that they leaned their rifles up against the back of the pews and uh, on a slippery 
from snow, wet hardwood floor, the rifles kept tipping over. And then the GIs would place their helmets under the pews in front of them. And when the people would kneel during the liturgy, they would kick the helmets and send them spinning like tops throughout the room. McAvoy says, it was the noisiest service I ever attended. But the sense of calm, well-being, and safety was amazing. It was peace in the midst of war. McAvoy also shared the other thing he remembered from that service. The boys in the choir loft giggled the entire service. They could not stop. What had happened was earlier, before the service start, a squadron had come in from patrol. They were dead tired. And so they spread their bedrolls right out where there was open space around the altar. When the priest came to start the mass at midnight, he didn't have the heart to wake them up. So one of the American GIs, when he heard the organ playing and looked up and seeing the priest in robes, he shouted out for the whole church to hear, I've bought it. Now, I've bought it would be a great translation of Luke 2 in verse 9. When the angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. The shepherds are called by God to be the eyes and the ears of that first Christmas. They are the ones who are called to be witnesses of the birth of Christ. And this morning, the shepherds share with Waterstone their witness in three words from our text. The words of Christmas are grace, peace, peace and faith, grace, peace, and faith. Now, the first word of Christmas, grace, is not actually written in Luke's text, in Luke chapter two, as Coral read for us, but it's there by implication, visibly seen through the actions of God. Specifically, that he would choose shepherds to be first responders to the birth of Christ, shepherds. Shepherds held a firm grip on the bottom rung of Jewish society. For one thing, they smelled. They were literally experts in dung. Managing dung, looking for green grass content just to monitor the diet of their livestock. They smelled, they were hygienically challenged class. If body odor is a social alarm clock, the shepherds were hitting the snooze button. That said, they were also on the bottom rung because they had some moral deficiencies. Now, this came to play later uh, in, in uh, the, the reputation of shepherds. In Jesus' day, it wasn't the reputation they would have in a, several centuries. But even in Jesus' day, Josephus writes that shepherds were not allowed to be credible witnesses in the court of law. We couldn't trust them. If uh, in our say, we say he cusses like a sailor, and that day he lies like a shepherd. It would be something like this. When God wants to give news to the world for global impact, he's going to send his messenger angel to the power place in the world. So he shows up in Washington, D.C., goes to the White House, but walks past the Oval Office, 
walks past the press room, goes deep into the bowels of the White House, down in the middle of the night where the graveyard shift work release janitor group is on break. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. For all people today, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. The gospel comes bottom up. That's been Luke's emphasis in the whole Christmas story in Luke 1 and 2, as we've heard week after week, that God reveals himself as the God who wants to bring salvation into the midst of us, but he starts among the poor and the powerless, a manger and shepherds, bottom up. Folks, the good news of Jesus is not an intellectual experience for smart people. The good news of Jesus is not a privileged membership for the rich and powerful. The good news of Jesus is not a regular ritual for religious people. It's good news for the no good. It's bottom up. Every year they publish letters that children write to Santa. I I saw one that went like this, Dear Santa, you didn't bring me anything good last year. And you didn't bring me anything good the year before that. This is your last chance. Signed, Connor. Another one. Dear Santa, in our house, there are three boys. There is Andrew. He is two. There is David. He is four. And there is Norman. He is seven. Andrew is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. But we're not Norman. We're shepherds. That God chooses the shepherds means that he chooses the foolish to shame the wise. He chooses the despised to shame the privileged. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. We have a shepherd's gospel. So what does that mean? What is grace like? How should it impact us? Well, we, I only have time for one application this morning, but take it in. It should radically change the way grace should radically change the way we view coming to church. Let me explain. Of course, we come to church to worship God. I mean, it's what we're wired to do it. It's, it's why we exist. We find no greater pleasure than when our hunger to lift up God meets with uh, God's uh, privilege of worship. But there's second to that, a missional purpose in worship. And it's captured in places like Hebrews 10 when it says, if I could paraphrase it this way, folks, Christians, don't skip church. Why? Because you are called, we are called to provoke one another with words to do good works. Why? Because the day is approaching. Take this in. We are called to prepare one another for heaven then. 
through sacrificial service to each other now. How do we do that? Well, each of us has walked into the room this morning with accumulated verdicts of who we are. Some of that has come from hurtful, wounding things people have said to us throughout our lives. And we carry that damage around, those wounds. But even more, we walk into the room with things that we are saying about ourselves. Lies that we believe about how worthless we are. And so you walk into a gathering, a community like this, and you begin to understand that in our interactions with one another, the way we use words, we have a massive power to overturn all those judgments and to an amazing degree redeem the past and inject healing deep into the wounded places of our hearts. How do we do that? By simply viewing each other and moving towards each other and talking to each other, understanding how God thinks of us. And what does Jesus think of us? Because we are in Christ, he views us as holy, righteous, and beautiful. The world accuses us of our faults, and we know they're there too, but we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ his opinion of us is that we are righteous, as righteous as his son. We are holy, as holy as a son, beautiful, as beautiful as a son, all of that credited to us. So when God looks at us, he sees beauty. And his opinion of us is the only opinion that counts. So our job is to move towards each other, especially with our words, how we talk to and about each other, sharing the opinion of Christ with one another. Waterstone, the reason you should never skip church, without a good reason, there's good reasons. The reason you need to show up is because someone needs to hear from you the importance of believing the gospel again. That's the power of grace in a community. And we come along at each other with our encouraging words and say, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Grace. It's a beautiful Christmas word. It's a shepherd's gospel. The farthest from God are the closest because what God loves becomes beautiful. <laughs> there was a seminary professor at Trinity Seminary named Paul Hebert, and in the later years of his life, he cared for his wife with Alzheimer's. And he wrote once to the alumni of Trinity, he said, I don't love her because she's beautiful. She's beautiful because I love her. a shepherd first gospel. Grace is the word, but peace. The, um, sh the shepherds are called to give a message of peace to the world. Let's read it again in Luke chapter two, verse uh, nine. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, 
Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The shepherds were invited by God, by grace, to be first responders to the birth of Jesus. And then the angel messengers give this message of peace to the shepherds and that comes through the birth of Christ, the Savior and Messiah the Lord. And they carry that message. First responders become first missionaries. I want to zero in a little bit on that message of peace because it's clear from the text that the product of Jesus coming as Savior and Messiah the Lord is peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, peace means different things to different people. What does peace mean to a soldier? Or what does peace mean to a, a, a mom carrying at two in the morning her infant, her colicky infant up and down the hall? Or what does peace mean to a child who hears his parents fighting through her bedroom walls again? Typically, in those scenarios, peace means the cessation of hostilities. And we all know how good that peace feels, but the problem with that peace is it can't hold. Babies will cry again, and war will break out again, and relationships will break again. That peace cannot hold. There has to be a peace that's deeper than the crushing waves of circumstances. That peace is a fundamental peace that transcends all the seasons and sufferings of our lives. That peace is relationship with God. And that's what the angel is announcing. And that is the message given to the shepherds to give to the world, that you can have relationship with God and find peace. So what is this peace that Jesus gives as we have relationship with him? It's two things. It's wrapped up in that word savior. That means that Jesus disarms our past. He delivers us from our sins. And that's on every page of the Bible that God is going to send a rescuer who would disarm the past. You know, we carry around our guilt and our shame and our embarrassments and our regrets. But we forget that God has the divine attribute of forgetfulness. That the only one remembering our regrets and shames and failures is me and you. God forgets them. He takes them out of the middle. They are no longer issues of relationship. God forgives and then our sins are no more. It's in places like Isaiah chapter one, though your sins be as scarlet. We know this in Colorado, they shall be white as. How about Psalm 103? I will remember your sins no more. They are separated from you as far as the east is from the west. That's far. You see, peace with God means that we have a Savior who disarms our past from robbing 
joy from our present. And we no longer have to carry around our past, our mistakes, our sins, our fears. We are forgiven. That's peace. But peace also has to do with disalarming our future. We all know that what we sit around and worry about is what's going to happen to our children. What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my health? What's going to happen to my relationships? You see, the the anxiety of the future sneaks into our present and robs peace. So what does Jesus have to say about that? Well, simply this. I am the only one, because I am Messiah, which means king, I am king, which means I bend history to my will, and I am Lord, which means that I conquer every human enemy, especially the big one. What's the biggest human enemy? Death. Because I am king, because I am Lord, I am the one who can take the alarm out of the future. How so? Well, uh, in Revelation, when we were back there, Revelation chapter 1, we, when uh, Dr. Matheson preached us through this, he mentioned these verses uh, about Jesus. When, when John saw him, I fell at his feet, Jesus, as though dead. It was, he was so holy. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. You see, he's the only one who can say it and mean it and promise it. Uh, I, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. When we say that Jesus is Messiah and Lord, that he's king, that he takes the alarm out of the future, we first see Jesus, this baby, who is the first and the last. We talked about when we preached through that, that it's a Hebrew uh, merism, a, a language tool, which means that you mention the bookends, first and last, to emphasize the middle. It means that Jesus, because he's first and last, has complete control over the middle. Every part of history, every part of your life. He is the first and last, which means he's got your in-between. He controls all things, which means nothing surprises him that's happening to you right now. Nothing surprises him. And nothing that's happening to you right now surpasses his wisdom. He is the first and the last. So he takes the alarm out of the future in that he has not left. He is still with you. He is in control of your life, already at work to redeem, to salvage, and to make sure that your suffering, hard as it is, is not meaningless. He is first and last, and he's got year in between. He's also the living one. That means that he is resurrected. And anyone who walks out of their own grave by their own power is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. Which means that even though the worst happens to you, you die. It's an upgrade. Even though you lose everything, he will not lose you. That's peace that does not ride the wave of circumstances. That is a peace that's anchored. Jesus uh, said something interesting about peace when he was teaching in John 14. uh, I think it's verse 27. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus is here contrasting the two kinds of peace that we have access to. The first is the world's peace. What is peace that the world tries to give? Well, have you watched a Christmas commercial lately? Peace the world gives has to do with a Mercedes-Benz sitting in your driveway with a nice bow on it while your children drink hot chocolate and watch you dance around praising Santa for your Mercedes-Benz. Peace is stuff. The other way the world tries to give peace is through what we would call uh, apocalyptic romance when you just whip out the diamond ring and you have this relationship in your life that gives you total, complete meaning. Every kiss begins with K relationships, that's peace. Or the world tries to give peace basically through diversion, escape. Just catch the bus and head out to Lodge Casino. Escape. Now, let's be honest. Those things are great. Who wouldn't? Point is, if you are holding those things as your peace, as your security, they can't be God to you. They can't be the living one. They can't be the one who has even the hard days under his management. They can't be the savior. They're great to have. But if you are holding on to those tighter than you're holding on to Jesus, your life will be the epitome of peacelessness because you will need more and more and more of those things to give what your heart truly needs. The Denver Seminary faculty sends out a devotional each week. And there was a really cool one in there by Larry Lindquist where he mentions this uh, little, little factoid. You remember in the Peanuts story, the Christmas speech of Linus when Charlie Brown asks, what is Christmas? And Linus goes out and stands, lights please. And then he begins to, to quote Luke 2 verses 8 through 20. And he gets to the um, part about the shepherds and when the angel says, do not be afraid. Guess what Linus does? For one of the few times in Peanuts history, he drops his blanket. It's there. Check it out. I did. It happens. Linus drops the blanket when he says, do not be afraid. What blankets do you need to let go of? What are you holding on so tightly to that you're beginning to understand that you're holding on so tight that it's actually doing the opposite work of peace in your life? What are you trusting in more than you are trusting Jesus? What do you need to drop? The gospel comes by grace to give us peace, relationship with God. How does it come? By faith. Faith. 
It's an interesting faith journey for the shepherds, right? They start out terrified and then they have trust that gets them to the manger and then they have telling, terrifying to trust to telling. How does that happen? There's a story of a woman from the Midwest who goes to Hollywood, California. And while she's there, she walks into an ice cream parlor and she notices that two spots behind her in line for a cone, it's him. Him. So famous, so gorgeous, Paul Newman. It's him. But she's from the Midwest, so she holds it together. She decides she's gonna pay for her ice cream cone, get outside, it's enough for her to say that she was in the same ice cream parlor as Paul, blue eyes, cool hand Luke Newman. By the way, for you younger ones among us, he was the Ryan Gosling of uh, his generation. He is that good looking. She goes through the line, she pays for her cone, she gets outside, she takes a deep breath. Oh, Paul Newman. When she realizes that she forgot her ice cream cone inside. But she's not going to go back in there and make a scene when Paul Newman's still there. So she decides she's going to wait till Newman goes through the line and then she'll go back in and get her ice cream cone. So she waits and he goes through the line. She's out, he's out of the way. She's, she looks on the counter. It's not there. She looks on top of the ice cream freezer. Her cone's not there. Suddenly she feels a tap on her shoulder. It's him. It's Paul Newman. <laughs> and he said, Miss, if you're looking for your ice cream cone, it's in your purse. <laughs> Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid and they cried out, I've bought it. And they put their ice cream cones in their purses. Have you ever wondered how God can even relate to us? He is so famous, so gorgeous, so beautiful, so holy, so pure, so big, so strong, so smart. And we, so small, so temporary. Do you ever think that God might feel like one of those supermodels, those lonely supermodels who exist only to give to people, but people really, after they get what they want from them, don't really want any relationship with them? It was Chesterton that said that the loneliness of God is the greater part of the Old Testament. How does God Close the gulf between him and us for relationship. Have you ever seen a baby picture of a celebrity? This is what Paul Newman looked like as a boy. Ah. Oh. A boy. Or, you know, another one that I would go gaga if I was in her presence. 
would be Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep as a baby. What's a baby? You know, we can have a room full here of like 400 people, but if a baby walks in the room, they're the celebrity. What is that? Because a baby is just a person with no persona. But yet we love them more than we love other people. What is that? That is how God loves us. Beneath our persona. Before and after we make all our mistakes, before and after we have all our huge successes, it doesn't matter. What God loves becomes beautiful. And he loves us beneath our persona. He's come as a baby to declare how much, declare and display how much he loves us. I'm curious this morning too, whether if we flip that around, if this is how God feels sometimes, that the way he's come to love us, he wants us to love him like that as well. Years ago, I knew a young pastor. He had two of the cutest sons you would ever see. And one night, after a long day, this young pastor of, you know, pastoral conversations and pastoral business and all this serious stuff that pastors do, it was his turn to tuck those two boys into bed. So they knelt down by the bed and the boy said, for whatever reason, daddy, daddy, tonight, you be the boy, we'll be the daddy. And so they had that busy pastor get in his bed and they pulled up the covers and tucked him in like a burrito. And then they pressed their hands down on his head like through the pillow. And they prayed, dear Jesus, you know every thought of his mind and you know every beat of his heart. So tell him that you're with him so that he can be a mighty man in your kingdom like Moses and Joshua and Paul. And for that moment, the busy pastor father was the treasured son. And I wonder if that's exactly what was happening when Mary picked up her infant son and held him close to her chest. In that moment, Mary knew God better than Moses at the burning bush and Elijah at Mount Carmel. And what if God was just saying to Mary, Mary, you be the mommy, I'll be the baby. And what if when the shepherds arrived, everyone was kind of thinking, shepherds, ah, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. What if God was saying to the shepherds, you be the shepherd, I'll be the lamb. My friends, he is the king of kings. He is more intimidatingly famous than Paul Newman, but he's very comfortable with shepherds. I know that we have worlds to conquer. I know that we have demons to slay. I know that we have kingdoms to build. But what if right now, in this moment, God is asking you to look into that manger and witness the one who ruled the world from the womb, the one who 
made the stars, the one who named you has now come to be with you. Emmanuel, will you pick him up? Will you hold him in your heart? Will you sing over him? We finish with a prayer and then we're going to sing a lullaby to Jesus. The prayer is from the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Let's pray together. Hello, Daddy. We want to know you and be close to you. Please show us how. Make everything in the world right again and in our hearts too. Do what is best just like you do in heaven and please do it down here too. Please give us everything we need today. Forgive us for doing wrong, for hurting you. Forgive us just as we forgive other people when they hurt us. Rescue us. We need you. We don't want to keep running away and hiding from you. Keep us safe from our enemies. You're strong, God. You can do whatever you want. You are in charge now and forever and for always. We think you're great. Yes, we do. Amen. Now let's go to the manger and sing a lullaby to Jesus. Would you stand?